From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. According to the USDA, wild hogs cause $1.5 billion of agricultural and environmental damage annually. Have you seen wild hogs damaging your property? Do you know how to legally get rid of wild hogs or other nuisance animals? Today on the program, we welcome Anthony Ballard, a nuisance species biologist from the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Also, if you have a pet question, Dr. Major's on hand to help out. Join the conversation with your phone call today. It's 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. This is Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. According to the USDA, wild hogs cause $1.5 billion of agricultural and environmental damage annually. Have you seen wild hogs damaging your property? Do you know how to legally get rid of wild hogs or other nuisance animals? Today on the show, we welcome Anthony Ballard, a nuisance species biologist from the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. So also, Dr. Major is here if you have any pet questions. Join the conversation today. All it takes is a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 Or you can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning to everyone. Hope that you're all doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Libby, you've got some uh, events uh, that you want to talk about to start things off. Let's see. Uh, Spring break at the Natural Science Museum is always a very big week, and if uh, it's a good place to go. So this afternoon and tomorrow, if you're looking for a place to get away with, with kids that have been around the house more than usual this week, you might uh, think about the Natural Science Museum. And uh, the trails are wonderful. I've been outside a lot. We've been over at the Fanny Cook, all kinds of things going on. So anyway, it's a great place to be this week. Uh, Fanny Cook's going to be at Lorelei Bookstore this evening at 5.30. So that would be a chance to see Kathy Shropshire Become Fanny Cook, if you haven't seen it. And then next week we're going to be, Fanny Cook goes to the uh, Oxford Conference on the Book. Okay. So she'll be there Wednesday morning on that program. And then Friday she is on the program for Homecoming at the W in Columbus. So we got a lot going on there. And clean up your bird feeders, your um, hummingbird feeders particularly. It's time to start looking for your hummingbirds. If you're on the coast, around the Hattiesburg areas, we've been getting lots of reports of them. So if you haven't seen your hummers on the coast in Hattiesburg area, you probably will very soon. And uh, let us know if you've already seen them in the Jackson area. All right. I have not yet, but they're, they're, they're in the state and they're moving north. And um, she was such an important figure in, in Mississippi mm-hmm. history. We 
I always like for you to remind listeners of who Fanny Cook is. Fanny Cook uh, started the, what was the Mississippi Game and Fish Commission, where Anthony works. It's now the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. I imagine she, in fact, um, interestingly enough, Miss Cook listed wild hogs as a problem back in the <laughs> 1920s when she was listing wow. the reasons why we needed game laws. She said drought. Uh, wildfires, uh, feral hogs, market hunters. She might have had them on the list to shoot as well. <laughs> Who knows? But there, there was a lot going on at the time, but she listed wild hogs as one of the reasons why we needed a Department of Wildlife. Okay. And it's certainly one of the reasons why we need one today. Absolutely. I uh, saw an interesting uh, video online the other day. It was, I think it was a hunter because he had like a bright orangey red hat on and a hummingbird came up and kind of flittered around and actually landed on the guy's hat. So uh, that was uh, – all his friends were – and, you know, these days, of course, everybody was reaching for their phones to capture it on video. And they <laughs> oh, got it I hope there. I get that. Maybe <clears throat> I'll see that one in my feed. <laughs> uh, so, Dr. Major, it is uh, kind of uh, allergy season for humans, and we talked a little bit uh, recently about how pets also uh, can sometimes suffer from allergies. In humans, it's a lot of sneezing and itching and that sort of thing. Um, how do the allergies uh, show up in, in our pets? Good question. It may show up as some of the respiratory things that we have, but usually it's more in skin, skin-related and or uh, GI or gastrointestinal type relation. But uh, we see a lot of skin-related allergies this time of year. But it's almost like year-round that we see them, uh, depending on the animal. But uh, both cats and dogs can have uh, fairly severe allergies. And there are things that can be done can be done for those. So just be aware, the biggest single uh, allergy probably is flea allergy. And uh, taking care of uh, external parasites. Is, is a big is a big problem here in Mississippi, and I would guess the the best advice for pet owners is you know they know what their pet's kind of normal behavior is. So if they see maybe uh, a lot of scratching, itching, or if it looks like their pet's kind of uh, um, you know uh, suffering with something, that would be the time to kind of get in touch with the vet and, and make sure everything's okay. Right. One of the first things that you see with the flea allergies, the dog may be scratching or cat, and you really didn't know that they had fleas, but Generally, if uh, the distal or back one half of the dog is affected, there's probably fleas going on. That's not always, but they can turn around and chew and try to catch those fleas. So that's not always true, but it is in a lot of cases. Uh, Sometimes fleas can start a problem, and then you get a secondary uh, bacterial infection uh, related to the scratching, excoriation of the skin, if you will. And it opens up the skin for secondary, uh, either infection from a yeast-type uh, infection or bacterial infection. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you'd like to call in today, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can also email the show, animals at mpbonline.org. And we do have some open phone lines if you'd like to go ahead and call in. As I mentioned earlier, our guest today is Anthony Ballard, a nuisance species biologist from the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Anthony, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's start out uh, very simply. What is a nuisance animal? 
Well, basically, there are new, there are animals that are classified both non-native and native. And you'll have to excuse me. I've got a little bit of horse going on. Speaking <laughs> of allergies and sinus problems and that sort of thing. So, um, but the the nuisance species in Mississippi are skunk, beaver, nutria, wild hog, coyote, and both red and gray fox. And so. Those list of animals are managed a little bit differently than a lot of our game animals are. Our game animals, we have seasons. We try to regulate those populations. We manage for them. Uh, nuisance species are a little bit different in that they reach that classification. Um, the, the most simple way to put it is they, they cause human-wildlife conflict of some type. And so those are the animals that are most likely to cause those. Beavers, for example, wild hogs, for example, like we already talked about, um, can cause a lot of damage and, and really change the environment that they live in pretty substantially. So uh, how does an animal get on that nuisance list? Well, it, it's a lot like the, the laws that are set forth by the MDWFP. You know, the, the species are talked about. Those uh, go through the proper channels of approval, and then they're placed on the list. I can't tell you exactly how it was done. I, I wasn't even close to around when that <laughs> list, and I'm sure it's changed over the years. But um, it goes through an approval process based on uh, the biological science that we have on the topic and uh, the, the human uh, rep, human relationships between those two. So um, if I'm upset that the dog down the street uh, barks all night, I, I can't get him on the nuisance list? <laughs> Unfortunately, no. <laughs> okay. Hey, again, we've got some open phone lines this morning for your questions uh, for Dr. Major. If you want to tell us uh, what you've been seeing when you've been out in Mississippi, or if you have a question about nuisance species for our guest, Anthony Ballard, give us a call. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So if you would tell us a little about the history of wild hogs in the U.S., how did we get to where we are today? Well, so as Libby mentioned before, they've been a problem for a very long time. Uh, initially, Hernando de Soto, explorer from Spain, as we all know, if we remember from our history, came over. And um, so hogs were, were taken from the wild variant, and then we domesticated them, most like we did dogs and, and other domestic animals. And they were brought over for food to, to the New World as explorers came over because they reproduced a lot. Um, they, they, they lived very well. They were a hardy animal. They, they grow very rapidly. They reach a, a very large body size very, in a pretty short amount of time. And, so, and, and they also taste delicious. And so they were a good uh, candidate to bring over to have a food supply in a place where you don't know what the wildlife is. You don't know what the native people look like. You don't know any of this, how you're going to get food. And so they were brought over initially to be a, an insurance policy, so to speak, to make sure that we can keep... Um, animals to eat and have a constant food source regardless of what we find over in this new place that we're going to. So, um, And then as, a, as time progressed, it was pretty common practice by most of the European settlers to bring them over uh, for that purpose. And um, they were eventually kept in, and you can imagine the type of pens that they were kept in at that time, you know, most likely pretty easily gotten out of. A lot of times they would actually free range them, which, which um, remained pretty popular even into the 19th century um, where people would just let, let them go out on the land, do their thing, and then they would just take them as they needed them for food. And so that's, that's how most of our original populations, especially in the southeast, were established.
Okay. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue our discussion with our guest, Anthony Ballard, a nuisance species biologist from the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Dr. Major is here as well to take your pet questions. Give us a call if you'd like to join the conversation. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 If you're not near a phone but want to join in, send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more after this. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We're visiting today with Anthony Ballard, a nuisance species biologist from the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. We've got some open phone lines for your calls this morning. If you want to join in, uh, dial one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. And again, I always age myself when I say dial, because with most phones this day, we, we don't dial anymore, so I guess I should say punch up those numbers. Uh, we do have a caller on the line, though, and it is Lindsay from Rolling Fork. Good morning, Lindsay. You're on the air. Go ahead. Yes. I had a question about the flood water and dealing with the alligators that have been pushed out of the creek. <laughs> and the backwater, because I'm used to seeing them, but I don't think a lot of people know what to do with them since they're on the side of the road, they're crossing the road, and they're just coming a lot closer than you're normally used to. Do you call when, I mean, how do you know when to call when one is staying too close to your home, basically? Well, Lindsay, we do have uh, a system in place for that. That's actually our our alligator biologist um, that you could give him a call. And we also have uh, enforcement officers that come out. And basically what happens is, uh, of course, alligators are going to be displaced by floodwaters. They're going to be finding different areas to go. And and then once it starts to recede, they'll they'll probably go back to where they came from, most likely, uh, or stay in a new body of water. But... um, so what we're talking about is falling into the category of a nuisance alligator, and the determination of that would be made by one of our conservation officers. So they come out on site, they evaluate whether that animal is showing traits of being a nuisance alligator. So, for example, loss of fear of humans, uh, any sort of aggressive behavior, that sort of thing. If that determination is made, then they have the option of, of either removing the alligator themselves or calling one of our agent uh, alligator trappers they could actually come out and remove that alligator. Uh, but like I said, that all, all goes through our uh, enforcement bureau. And then the, the biologist or the um, conservation officer on site will make that determination. Okay. So call the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. Right. That's a good idea, right? Mm-hmm. All right, Lindsay, thanks okay. for your call. We've got some open phone lines for your question at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464, send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. And as Anthony mentioned, I think uh, alligators are like a lot of creatures that we tend to be afraid of. It's almost like they're more afraid of us than we are of them. So for the most part, I would think if you see one, you mind your own business, he'll mind his own business. Generally, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, wild hogs, uh, and you talked about how really they were introduced here with, and it wasn't any kind of nefarious 
you know, motives in mind. It was just one of those things where I guess uh, they came over and, and over time the population just got a little bit out of control. So how do they affect uh, the quality of, of the habitat where they're located? Well, it's, you know, we see this over and over again with, with humans uh, having the best intentions and then causing the worst problems imaginable as far as the, the natural <laughs> system goes. Uh, but you're right. They, they, brought, they were brought over with no ill intent. Uh, however, when, when that established population began, uh, and really with any invasive species, uh, the reason why invasive species get out of control the way that they do, whether it's aquatic or, or uh, terrestrial, is because there are, you know, there's a natural balance of things. There's a natural predator-prey balance. There's a natural dietary balance. Um, and so once that balance is interrupted by additional pressures, uh, whether it be predation or anything like that, Wild hogs can change the environment from the bottom up and from the top down, anywhere from a microbial level, uh, influencing the, the water quality, turbidity in water, uh, introducing E. coli bacteria into water sources, uh, all the way up to eating turkey eggs and deer fawns and, and actually direct, directly predating on those native wildlife species that we have. And so it's really a habitat, habitat degradation um, to a scale that, that I don't think can be accomplished by any other non-native species that we've seen in, in the U.S. And I guess you, you mentioned uh, that one of the reasons they that were brought over here is that they, they breed quickly, and I guess the, the <coughs> size, those might be a couple more factors as to why they have such an impact on, on the habitat when they're there. That's right. Um, an adult wild hog will eat 3 to 5% of its body weight every day, and so if you consider a 2, 3, even 400-pound animal, uh, that's that's a lot of groceries, and so you know there's only so much, so many seats at the table, so to speak, as far as natural production of of uh, resources. So we're looking at hard mass in the fall. We're looking at berries and uh, you know underground roots and tubers and things like this that that hogs eat a lot of and have to eat a lot of. Um, agriculture is another big thing. You know, talk to anybody in the Delta, and they'll tell you what an economic impact they have. Uh, one of the recent studies that came out of MSU estimates between 60 and 70 million dollars annually just in Mississippi um, that that wild hogs have as an impact there so uh, you know especially when you talk about you know going back to those human wildlife conflicts uh, they pretty much cause all types of damage everywhere they go yeah and I guess you know we, we sometimes get calls of people coming uh, calling and complaining about you know deer uh, eating things in their area you, you can imagine if, if it was a hog uh, that that's 10 20 fold of, of what the problems might be right uh, we've got another caller on the line, so why don't we say good morning to Bill in Greenwood. Go ahead, Bill. You're on the air. Yeah, huh, I got two qu- two questions for the wildlife guy. One thing I, I don't I don't seem to like uh, like uh, when I go out in the country, I just see a lot of feral hogs or hogs rotting in the sun. I, I don't know. Do, do they uh, feed them to the poor, or is there some kind of program where they can? Uh, do that, and also uh, you talk about you don't want to trap the alligator, but why would you want to trap the foxes? Because uh, they're a beautiful animal, and trapping is mighty painful, and we're trying to bring back the wolf. Why would you want to make them extinct, the foxes? Well, I don't think we're trying to make them extinct. Like I said, there's a natural balance that has to be obtained with with predator and prey, and fox are a native wildlife species, and so uh, if you got the impression that we're trying to eradicate foxes, that's definitely not the case. Uh, they are considered a, a fur-bearing animal as well, and so there's a trapping season for them. But to get to your other question is a, a very good question, actually, uh, about donation of wild hog. And, you know, us as sportsmen, 
we like to conserve things. We like to, to, to eat what we take, you know, out in the field. We like to use it any way we can, and we don't like to be wasteful. And, and I think that's a very good quality of our hunters and our outdoorsmen. Uh, the problem with wild hogs is they carry so many zoonotic diseases that can be, tra- they can be transmitted to people. And so if anyone mishandles that meat, undercooks the meat that's being donated, then you're looking at liability problems. Or you're looking at pot- potentially infecting people. Things like lept- leptospirosis, uh, trichinosis, um, brucellosis, all these things, all the osis. <laughs> um, but there's, the bottom line, there's a lot of things that can be transmitted to people, and it's just too much of a risk to assume, uh, too much of a liability to assume for most organizations to donate that meat because if it is mishandled, it could be a health hazard. All right, Bill, thanks for your call. We've got it, some open phone lines. No, uh, we'll mention, Bill, years ago we we did try to do that, to donate the meat. Mm-hmm. And then when all the <laughs> disease problems started being realized, we I think everybody realized we just can't take that kind of chance. Right. And there, I mean, there's still cases nationwide every year of people that, uh, particularly hog hunters and, and slaughterhouse workers are the two main types that are two main categories that are most at risk uh, that can contract things like brucellosis, which is one that I use a lot because it's chronic. You know, once you get it, you can treat it, but you can't necessarily get rid of it. And that's a, a pretty high price to pay for for making one mistake and, and having a cut on your hand that you didn't know about and, and contracting something like that. We're visiting today with Anthony Ballard, a nuisance species biologist from the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. We're talking about nuisance species, primarily the wild hogs. If you have a question for Anthony or a pet question for Dr. Major, or if you just want to share with us what you've been seeing when you go out uh, in the state of Mississippi, give us a call. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464 or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So why after deer season do we see more wild hogs? Well, um, I mean, one one thing is springtime, it's kind of warming up and people tend to be outside in the outdoors uh, more. Uh, but we also have to look at the, like I talked about before, the food avail- availability on the ground. So in the fall, we have the acorns that drop and those sustain you know, from about the earliest fall, about October into December and January. And so once we get into February and March and April, we're, we're right kind of in that middle point where we, we hadn't quite had the spring green up yet, but we are pretty much out of acorns uh, in, in most places. And so it's really hard to be a, an animal at that point because there's just not a lot of food to go around. And when there's not much food to go around, you have to travel more to find it. And so the more you, a, a hog or any other animal has to travel, the more likely someone else is to see it. And so that, that could be one reason why they're, uh, they're a lot more visible. Another reason is, you know, wild hogs are very intelligent animals. And so uh, they, they shift their patterns to avoid people, particularly during deer season, just like deer do. And so uh, once that pressure is taken off of them, deer season's over, they're more likely to come out, you know, in the daytime hours where they're, they're now less likely to be, uh, to be messed with. So does uh, does their intelligence sort of add to the the factors that make them a nuisance that, that maybe they can outsmart some of, some of our efforts? It, it absolutely is. Uh, that that plays a big role, particularly in trapping. You have to be very careful about how you do it, and and there are ways to do the right things the wrong way as far as trapping goes. And, and I'll I'll cover a little bit of that more if we have time. But uh, they're very intelligent animals, and they're they're very observant. 
and it's you have to go about trapping in a certain way or you end up hurting yourself more than you do helping yourself. So, All right, well, let's talk about uh, some of the legal ways to get rid of wild hogs. So the, the two main ways that we have are hunting and trapping. And so a lot of people still hunt during, you know, during deer season, and, and that's perfectly fine and, and legal. But um, far and away, the best method to get rid of wild hogs is by trapping. And so the reason for that is, <clears throat> excuse me, and like I said before, uh, when you set up a wild hog trap, the goal is to get that entire sounder, which is no more than a social unit of hogs, um, usually it's multiple generations of hogs, to go into that trap to start trusting it uh, and start trusting that environment to go into that trap and to catch all of that entire group in one trapping event. And that way you can get rid of that whole entire sounder because if you don't, then the ones that you don't catch are that much smarter and they're a lot less likely to go in the trap. And so you have to be very careful about how you do it. You can't just set it, you know, a lot of people try to set it like a mouse trap. You just put it, you put the bait in and set it to catch. And then uh, usually what you do is catch a few juveniles uh, the ones that are actually producing and adding to that population, the adult sows, are not caught because they knew better than to go in it the first time. Uh, they breed one more time, they have another litter, and we're right back where we were. And so you have to be very careful when, you, when you're trying to remove on a population scale, which is what we try to do, um, to, to do it the correct way. Uh, let's take another quick break. When we get back, we'll talk a little bit about hunting wild hogs as well. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and today we're visiting with Anthony Ballard, nuisance species biologist with the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. If you'd like to join the conversation with a phone call, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Or email the show, animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hardfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We're visiting today with Anthony Ballard, a nuisance species biologist from the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks. And we've been talking about some of the nuisance species in Mississippi, primarily the wild hogs. Uh, We've got some open phone lines. If you would like to join in our conversation today, just call 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, um, Anthony, before the break, we were talking about legal ways to get rid of wild hogs, and you said the two primary ones were trapping and hunting. Um, so, and, and we also uh, mentioned that uh, the meat is not really safe to eat. So if uh, someone chooses to hunt wild hogs, what, what do you do if you, if you get one? Well, so I, I don't mean to suggest that the meat is not safe to eat, but you're just assuming a risk when you do, as, as with all wild meats that you choose to or not to eat. But um, the risk is a little more with wild hogs than with other animals. However, if you handle that meat properly, so you know rubber gloves are the cheapest insurance policy you can buy, uh, your proper PE, PPE, uh, so rubber gloves, eye protection, uh, don't be chewing gum or drinking anything while you're processing the hog, th- those sorts of things, uh, those precautions. Um, and then you know, sterilize all your utensils, alcohol or bleach or whatever, disinfect it, works fine. 
And then uh, when you're cooking the meat, you want to get it up to pasteurization temperature, which is uh, at least 165 degrees in pork. And so as long as you take those proper methods, uh, it's, it's not possible for you to contract any of these zoonotic diseases. The problem comes in when people skip out and don't do that. And, I mean, let's be honest, how many Mississippians wear rubber gloves when they process their wild game? You know, <laughs> probably not many. Uh, and so, you know, particularly that's a pretty important point when, when – especially when processing wild hogs. Uh, and Dr. Major, also we mentioned uh, during the break uh, that you need to be careful uh, when it comes to wild hogs, uh, even when uh, talking about food for your for your dogs. Right. Feeding, feeding raw, raw meat to the dogs, uh, especially from the hogs, certainly can be a problem. Uh, transmitting, transmitting even intestinal parasites, the trichinosis, and I think we mentioned leptospirosis, uh, there may be different ways that that can be transmitted, but certainly could be a very serious disease. And we've seen a few over the years uh, that uh, did contract disease by eating raw uh, feral hog meat. Mm-hmm. Pseudorabies is another one in, in right. pets that's a big right. concern. Right. Okay. Looks like we've got a couple of calls for Anthony on the line. So let's begin again in Brookhaven. Andrew's called in today. Good morning, Andrew. Go ahead. Hey, yeah, I've got um, a question. I've got some buddies who trap hogs uh, out in Rodney, and uh, they have these big traps, and what they do is they take this corn and they soak it in diesel, and uh, I guess that's to keep the deer out or something. I'm not quite sure, but I was just wondering how safe is it to uh, to eat wild hog meat that's, or eat wild hogs that have eaten this diesel-soaked corn, and if that's, you know something to worry about or if i should stay away from eating that type of hog well i think the the rationale behind the diesel is um when you put corn out on the environment everything loves loves corn everything eats corn and so uh one of the rationales there is to try to keep the deer off of it and the raccoons off of it a little bit because of the way it smells um wild hogs the diesel smells sweet and they like they tend to like petroleum products of any kind they tend to be attracted to it and so Uh, but as far as eating it um, after they've ingested something like that, I don't think would be a problem. Uh, maybe our, our veterinarian could give us a little a little more guidance on that. I, I wouldn't think so. I've never heard of any health hazards from that. But I would I would think that it'd be safe. Yeah. Uh, if again handled properly, like right. like you described, I'd say there'd be a whole lot more uh, concern with handling the meat properly because of a disease transmission standpoint than because you soaked it in diesel. All right, Andrew, appreciate your call. And again, let's uh, emphasize that, uh, you know, it, it, it's safe to eat, but you you want to make sure uh, that you take the precautions. And so a lot of places that they, for the liability reasons and that sort of thing, that's why uh, it's not more widely done. But uh, just if you're going to do it, be very, very careful and make sure you follow all the proper procedures. Next, we've got Juanita on the line from Oxford. Good morning, Juanita. Go ahead. Oh, good morning to you, and thank you for taking my call. My question, um, I, I hope I haven't been repeating this because I tuned into the program about 10 minutes into it, but um, I was wondering if your guest could, uh, you know, clarify, how did, even in the 20s, the wild hog population get to be a nuisance and an, and an overburdening population? How did that occur, um, considering that, you know, there's always been plenty of hunters here. What's the origin of the problem is my question. I'll hang up and listen. 
Okay, well, and, and you're not really repeating a question, uh, Juanita. I appreciate your your uh, calling in, but so the original introduction of wild hogs, as we know, was was back in the 1530s, uh, the original introduction. But you know, since then, uh, both parties, wild hogs and humans, have been expanding, and so. You know, when we have more more woods and then we turn them into more Walmart parking lots, we have less woods and less habitat. That's been a problem. Uh, you know, the, the, the ecosystems, the habitat uh, qualities have been constantly changing since humans have been here and since we've been expanding and all that. So um, urban sprawl, as it's called, is, is part of the problem for a lot of loss of habitat. Uh, so it, it tends to cause a lot more human-wildlife conflict. Um, but another thing, you know, a lot of people think of wild hogs and, and white-tailed deer as somewhat comparable. Uh, but as far as uh, reproduction, so white-tailed deers, white-tailed deer, they breed once a year. And in a healthy population, in, in good habitat and good body condition, they're going to have two offspring. Okay, so that's two offspring per year. Wild hogs can breed twice a year, and their average is four to six, but they can have up to 14 in a litter. And so you can look at a comparison of two white-tailed deer versus a reproduction of potentially from one sow up to almost 30 offspring. You can really see how those populations aren't even apples and oranges. They're just in completely two different hemispheres as far as their reproductive potential. And so, you know, again, that goes back to that invasive species they also get to a, a body um, size fairly quickly where there's not many natural predators that are going to that are going to be able to um, feed on those on those piglets and so uh, once they get up to about 40 40 or 50 pounds they really don't have to worry about much as far as uh, predation goes and so all those factors put together ensure that a lot of wild hogs get to sexual maturity which is also early and then they start to repro- reproduce even more so and again, when you were telling us about trapping, you mentioned how important it was to try to get the sow. And then, as you just demonstrated, that it's very important to, to cut it off at the source, I guess you could say. That's right. So let me, uh, during the break, we were talking about the, the, the list, the nuisance animal list. Uh, and you were telling us that occasionally it's reviewed, updated, that sort of thing? Yeah, if people have a problem with something on the list, they can certainly make comments. Okay. Yes. We've got some open phone lines. If you'd like to call in with a question this morning, it's one eight seven seven mpb ring one 672 You can also send us an email, animals at mpbonline.org. So we talked about hunting and trapping. Um, Anthony, what about wild hog pesticides? Well, that's something that we could spend an entire episode talking about. Um, the, the long and the short of it is there are still currently no states that allow any type of pesticides to be used. And so if you hear somebody using a pesticide, please report it to your law enforcement agency because it is not legal to do so. Uh, there have been a lot that have been unofficially and, and uh, unlawfully used in the past, uh, different pesticides to get rid of a lot of different things. Um, however, um, there is none that's been approved in any state to use right now. And again, I guess the idea there might be um, you, you're not sure exactly what effect these pesticides might have on, on other things in the environment. Right. And and there's some, uh, the, the two main ones that have been talked about are warfarin and sodium nitrite. Uh, sodium nitrite is basically a salt that's used, ironically, in a lot of pork products uh, as a preservative. Uh, and then warfarin is used commonly in, in human medications, blood thinners, and then also has been uh, was originally used in a lot of rat poisonings. It's basically an anticoagulant. 
and so uh, they the two the two toxins work in completely different ways. Uh, the problem is uh, transitioning what we know about these things in a laboratory, what we know about them in a controlled setting versus what we need to know about them if we, if they're ever put out in a natural environment because that's a completely different ball game. So uh, you know the long and the short of it is there hasn't been any approved. Um, we hope that that is something that can be used in the future, but it has to be used it has to be properly tested and used in a safe manner. We're visiting today on Creature Comforts with Anthony Ballard, a nuisance species biologist from the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks, and we've been talking primarily about wild hogs. Uh, if you have a question for Anthony or a pet question for Dr. Major, you can give us a call at 1877-MPB-RING. Our phone number is 1877-672-7464. You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. So Anthony, if you would tell us about the wild hog program. Well, um, the wild hog program was actually started with my hiring about two years ago. Uh, originally, we had our um, our gator biologist, who was also a fur bear biologist and also a wild, uh, nuisance species biologist. And uh, you know, the problem with wild hogs and and the necessity to have someone to specifically handle that category of animal nuisance species, but wild hogs particularly. Um, was sort of growing along the way, and, and uh, <clears throat> I, I finished my master's work in Louisiana at Monroe, University of Louisiana at Monroe, and uh, worked over the summers in, in Louisiana Department of Wildlife out of the Baton Rouge office for a little while. Uh, both of those those times over there, I was doing wild hog work, uh, worked for the wildlife veterinarian in, uh, in Baton Rouge, and came back over here, and, and it just so happened that uh, they were looking for somebody with my qualifications, and, and I was able to be hired on with the agency, and like I said, a little over two years ago. So, uh, But what we've tried to do with the wild hog is, number one, uh, it's an information battle. We want to make sure that people are, are as informed about wild hogs as possible uh, so that they can make correct decisions about, about issues that arise. Um, and so, you know, education, things like this, the radio show, I do a lot of public speaking engagements to um, anything from, from wildlife groups uh, to rotary clubs to, to schools and, and that sort of thing, just to spread the word, whoever I need to talk to and, and, and kind of spread the word. We've, um, we've created a page on our website, the Wild Hog Program page, and, and it kind of covers everything from, from biology to the regulations, uh, which I should also mention if you have any other questions about regulations specifically about wild hogs, uh, mdwfp.com. And then the Wild Hog Program tab is a great resource to to read about that. Uh, and so uh, I also do private lands visits, and so I can go out on private lands people's property and uh, give them tips and tricks on how to be more successful in trapping and, and getting rid of wild hogs on their property. Uh, also overseen and uh, standardized a little bit of our trapping on, on our wildlife management areas, which we do a lot of also uh, pretty much anywhere outside of deer season. So... Um, you know, a lot of a lot of management techniques, technical guidance, and and also public education is is a big part of it. So, um, what about the range? How how much uh, or how widely dispersed are wild hogs? How many kind of states maybe have uh, issues with wild hog populations? Well, in Mississippi, they're found in all eighty two counties, and so it's you know kind of the old saying and within the the field, I guess, if you don't have them, just be patient and you got to come in. So, uh, <laughs> it's just sort of a terrible thing, but, uh, so they're found in all 82 counties and, um, I believe it's, uh, 
between 40 and 45, I think it's like 42 or 43 states that, that have viable populations. And it, it changes from time to time because you have, you know, fringe populations, just, you know, one, a few sounders that pop up somewhere and they're eliminated and then that state goes back to not knowing of a population again. So it, it changes a little bit over time, but uh, it's a very widespread problem. Uh, the most dense populations are in the southeast. That's where they were originally uh, introduced, and so that that sort of makes sense that they would they would grow. Uh, but one of the one of the big problems with the spread of wild hogs is is people. Again, it, it comes down to people again. Um, so we don't encourage the recreational hunting of wild hogs. Uh, so what happens is a lot of people uh, decide that they they enjoy having hogs around. Uh, it's another thing to hunt. It's fun. It's exciting. And so they make the decision to illegally transport wild hogs from one place into a new area. And so you're introducing new diseases into an area. You're, you're subjecting all those native wildlife species to a new predator and, and causing destruction in agriculture and wherever else where these things are, are uh, spread. And so that's, that's probably the biggest problem as far as stemming the spread of wild hogs is, is trying to keep them from being spread on trailers. And again, that's why you mentioned how you're part of the Wild Hog Program, that public outreach uh, education is so important. <clears throat> that's right. it, to take one final break this hour, we've got some open phone lines for your question at one eight seven seven mpb ring Call us at one 672 7464 We'll be back to wrap things up on Creature Comforts after this short break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We're visiting today with Anthony Ballard, a nuisance species biologist from the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks. We've got some open phone lines and some time left in the show. If you'd like to join in, call us at one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. By the way, we talk frequently on the show about birds. Just wanted to mention that this year is the hundredth anniversary of the Migra- Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which uh, provides that it's unlawful to pursue, hurt, uh, sorry, sorry, pursue, hunt take, capture, kill, possess, sell, purchase, barter, import, export, or transport any migratory bird or any part, nest, or egg of such bird unless authorized under a permit issued by the Secretary of the Interior. Uh, the act is uh, saved lives of millions of birds over this last hundred years. So heard that on uh, the news the other day. Just wanted to mention that yes. as well. So uh, we've got a call on the line. Let's uh, begin again. Rick's in uh, Ridgeland and has called in today. Good morning, Rick. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, my call is uh, in regard to uh, our homeowners association, along with uh, the Jackson Yacht Club up in that area, have dealt with feral cats and have learned about how we should be dealing with them and, and their range. What I'm curious with the hog issue is, is that do hogs have ranges uh, that they uh, that they uh, protect uh, like feral cats do, uh, and that uh, if you feed and then uh, allow them to bathroom and, and catch and spay and neuter, you can control feral cat populations with hogs. Is it the same? Well, as far as the the range of wild hogs, it's going to vary uh, in in season. So, like I said before, if, if food resources are, are lower, they're going to have to travel in long in larger ranges. 
Uh, as far as a control method, I'm, I'm not sure how that would be uh, how that would be done. I, generally, the the best way to control wild hogs is just by trapping and and dispatching there on site. Um, does that does that answer your question? Yes, thank you very much. Yes, right. sir. Rick, thanks for the phone call. Uh, so, Anthony, you were telling us about trapping uh, and that uh, you have to be very clever because the, the hogs are smart animals. Uh, do we have any new technologies and maybe trying to stay one step ahead of them when trapping? We do. Uh, well, the, the, so the first thing is, is always bigger is better when you're trying to trap. Um, so you want to make that trap feel as little as confining as possible. You don't want to make it feel like a trap. And so the more open doors that you have, multiple doors are better than single doors, larger doors are better than smaller doors because um, when an animal has to walk into that space of confinement like that, that could be the difference between convincing an old mature hog to walk in it or to not. And so um, so that's important. But some of the newer technologies uh, that the department is, has purchased and is actually using on a, our wildlife management areas are, are new automated trapping systems. And so these are uh, cellular-activated uh, live stream video cameras that can be set up that have remote control gates. Uh, the ones that we're running have about a, a second to a second and a half delay. And so you can literally lay in your bed and watch <laughs> hogs and, and trap them and roll back over. So um, I don't know that my wife appreciates it a whole lot. My, my email is going off at three in the morning, but uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things. But it does bring a whole new level of control to wild hog trapping because with the manual ways, uh, yes, they're a lot less expensive, but you also have a lot less control over that situation. You know, state laws, you ha- state law states that you have to check that trap every 36 hours. And so when you put in the man time and the wear and tear and the fuel consumption, uh, for us as a state agency is our time. Uh, you really start to spend a lot of money, whereas when you can set up one of these automated systems, you can monitor everything remotely um, and you can control exactly when those gates drop. It, um, it removes the human aspect of it so much where basically you're just looking at a computer screen rather than having to drive out there, you know, maybe multiple miles to get to a trap just to see that there's nothing in it or that the, all the bait's been eaten or whatever. We can check all that remotely. So that's something that has increased our efficiency a lot. And it's also increased our, our effectiveness a lot with, with being able to trap that entire sounder. Uh, let's get one final call in before the hour is up, and it goes to Judy in Water Valley. Good morning, Judy. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. I'm calling, I don't have a question that's directly about wild hogs, but I swear I saw a cougar the other night on the side of the road. And um, and I've been told that you don't find those in Mississippi. Um, I'm certain it's what I saw. Could you talk about that population? And maybe it could relate to hogs because maybe they would control that population at all. I don't tell, know. tell us where you were, where you... I was driving between Oxford and Water Valley along Highway 7. And it was alive. It was standing by the side of the road. How big? How big was it? It was really big. <laughs> I, mean, it was, I know it wasn't, um, you know, a house cat. It was, I mean, it was, I drove by so fast, but it, I mean, it looked like the size of a, of a lion or something. Well, here's, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, here's the way we answer that question. We get calls. Very often, uh, we don't tell people what they saw and what they didn't. Uh, I can tell you what the science is. There were two confirmed um, cougar sightings in Louisiana this last year. And so to say it's outside the realm of possibility that they are in the state, we can't say it's outside the realm of possibility. 
Uh, we can say that there are an estimated 200-ish black bears in the state of Mississippi, and we get calls all the time. We get at least one or two, maybe even three or four road kills per year. We get trail camera evidence. We get all types of evidence. We find prints. There, there are just a multitude of different evidence that we find with black bears. And in the grand scheme of things, there are not that many of them. And so, you know, we do know the big cats are a little more secretive, but uh, we, we've yet to have any confirmed trail camera pictures. We've yet to have any confirmed tracks. Um, we've, we've just had eyewitness reports. And, you know, it's, it's very hard to say. I mean, I've been out and, and thought I saw things that turned out to be completely different. And so, you know, to say that there is, definitely isn't a population in Mississippi, uh, you know, you can't say that. To say it's highly unlikely it is pretty safe to say. With the size of the cat <clears throat> being that big, you would have to think it probably was a release that some either escaped or somebody released it based that, on the fact. That's a good that, point. We actually, um, I don't know how many years ago it was, but I know there was one that people did actually kept seeing and, and were reports of it and finally went out. It was an escaped, uh, I think, from a, a private owner that actually had one and it escaped. Uh, it was it was declawed. That was a pretty good indication that it wasn't a wild animal. But uh, And so, yeah, stuff like that does happen. And so we don't say, well, that's that's stupid, you didn't see it. But we can say that uh, if there are any in the state, there are very, very few. Okay, very good. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funded is provided in part by Wildlife Mississippi, a statewide organization celebrating more than 20 years of conserving Mississippi's lands, waters, and wildlife. And from contributions from listeners like you. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Michelle McAdoo. So for Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest Anthony Ballard, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned up next at 10. It's MPB's Season Pass. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.